people are speculating on different de- types of design because we're early in the uh, evolution of stable coins. But ultimately, we've seen the best models play out, and that tends to be the you know one-to-one backed or over collateralized models. Often on the podcast, we speak to protocols and founders that are managing a few million under management. In this episode, I got to speak with Ryan and he is from the team at Bitwise. Now, Bitwise have $1.3 billion in AUM. That's billions with a B and counting. plus a four-year track record of managing professional funds for institutional investors in crypto. So this was a unique opportunity to sit down with somebody who's at the forefront of institutional adoption of crypto and speaking to investors all day long about where DeFi goes from here. Enjoy the podcast. Today I'm delighted because I've got Ryan here from Bitwise. How are you, Ryan? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I'm a follower of yourself on Twitter. You write some pretty detailed threads of your your articles, so hopefully we can we can get into all of that. But before we do, could you tell us a little bit about Bitwise and how you fit into Bitwise? Yeah, definitely. And appreciate the follow. Also, been following the podcast here this year, so loving to see the growth and what you guys are doing over at at Reef. Like you said, my name is Ryan Rasmussen. I, I'm a research analyst at Bitwise Asset Management. We are a crypto asset management company focused solely on providing access for institutional investors like hedge fund managers and financial advisors and RAs, providing access to that kind of customer base into crypto products. That uh, spans everything from you know index funds, which we created the first crypto index fund that launched in 2017. That's the, the Bitwise 10 index that tracks the top 10 crypto assets by market cap. And then we have a few other sector-specific indexes like a DeFi index and an NFT index. We also have a, a, a crypto innovators index that tracks Bitcoin miners and uh, other other crypto companies like Coinbase and Silvergate. And then, yeah, we have a bunch of single asset funds as well that are structured like private placements for accredited investors. So, you know, it's these aren't retail facing products necessarily, but we focus mainly on trying to provide a bridge for institutional investors to get access to crypto. And you've had tremendous success since launching. Obviously, being a first mover was a huge advantage. How much? What is your assets under management currently? Yeah, yeah, definitely was a great being, you know, launching that first index in 2017. We're at about a billion in assets under management today, which it's grown quite a bit. And, and along, along with that, you know, we've luckily gained the experience of, or I guess, you know, for better or worse, not necessarily luckily, of, of being through a few of these bull and bear market cycles. And so, uh, you know, our, our firm and our index ha- and product has kind of gone through a cycle of, you know, 90% drawdowns like we saw in the last bear market. And so while no one's loving this current period, you know, our track record and our experience has luckily, uh, I think, set us up to be in a pretty good position. It has indeed. And so tell me more about yourself, Ryan, how you got involved at, at Bitwise and your own kind of crypto journey. Yeah, definitely. It's always fun to to talk, you know, how we how we all got into this path. My crypto journey started kind of just with my basic interest in finance. I studied it in college. A lot of my friends that I kind of, you know, 
became friends with in college, studied finance. Some of them went on to explore crypto, you know, as it became more and more popular. I, I kind of went the traditional finance route and worked at a traditional asset manager for about seven or eight years in their financial planning and analytics team. So did a lot of corporate finance stuff there. And meanwhile, you know, was getting really into the stock market and trading options and, and you know, the traditional kind of uh, trading side of things. And once once I found out about Ethereum, I got really into the concept of being able to build a new kind of application layer on on blockchains. It kind of felt like the next evolution to Web3 was was really exciting having grown up, you know, with iPhones and and kind of seeing that evolution happen at an interesting time. And so I started, you know, investing in Ethereum, going down that rabbit hole, eventually got into DeFi kind of around DeFi summer, but was still working at traditional finance a company that I was at. And yeah, you know, when when COVID hit, I think like a lot of people, I spent a lot of days walking around and listening to different podcasts, episodes and about crypto. And ultimately made the decision in 2020 that I wanted to make the jump full time into crypto and was lucky that I was searching for quite a while, but found a position at Bitwise that I was really interested, the DeFi research analyst. And I ended up applying for that and joining Bitwise about a year and a half ago. So have been here for a while now and technically focused on DeFi, but our research team is relatively small. So I focus on, you know, all variety of things, NFTs, Web3, DeFi, uh, etc. Amazing. So let's let's get an insight into that. So you are one of the largest, if not the largest crypto asset manager, and your specialism is researching DeFi. Talk us through what your a typical week might look like. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a really interesting week to week. I, I do love this job and that it's, it's constantly changing. So we probably spend about 40 to 50% of our time just uh, producing research that is aimed really for our customer audience. So I kind of mentioned earlier that we face off with financial advisors and hedge fund managers and these are family offices. And so they are kind of on a spectrum of their crypto journey, meaning that a lot of them are, are interested in crypto and are trying to get their, their customers and clients to understand you know, how, how valuable crypto can be in a portfolio. But we also have a lot of our, our customer audience that really only is just hearing about it for the first time, or maybe their clients are asking them about getting into crypto. And so they're feeling the need to start exploring it. And so we spend about 40 to 50% of our time producing research aimed at helping traditional investment professionals along their crypto journey. And that can be things like a white paper we produced last uh, last fall that was, you know, a, a primer on DeFi for investment professionals and it it also includes, you know, some monthly analyst columns that we've been putting out recently which hopefully we'll get to talk about and you know, we cover everything from how DeFi manages risk or or rather risk management in DeFi protocols or, you know, separating good stable coins from bad stable coins and uh, so yeah, I spend about 40% of my time focused on producing that kind of content, spend another probably, you know, 25% of our time working with our investors and our, you know, prospective investors and helping them understand uh, our, our product structure or the industry as a whole and, you know, how to think about crypto assets and what is a blockchain and, you know, what is DeFi and then spend yeah, the remaining time, you know, helping, helping manage our indexes and working on product strategy and, and things like that. 
So we have a shared ethos there because at ReFi, we're big believers in in educating our audience and our followers and our investors with regards to everything that's happening in DeFi. So perhaps we can get into that education piece and, and, and really deep dive into your latest article, which is all about stablecoins. So obviously a lot of uh, a lot of spotlight on stablecoins in the fallout of Terra and UST in particular. This this article that you, you wrote, one of the questions there is, why are there different stablecoins? Why do we not just need one? Why does there have to be so many different types of them? Yeah, definitely. I think that's an interesting question. One thing about stablecoins that, that I find particularly fascinating is that they're really not that complex. And I'm actually not sure that we need to have a ton of different types of stablecoins. And, and there's all this you know, further innovation necessary, like algorithmic stable coins and all that. You know, the reason why we have a few different types, I think is because, you know, people have different levels of trust that they're willing to, uh, or, or yeah, different levels of trust that they're willing to deal with from an issuer perspective. And so those who want a little bit m- more capital efficiency, meaning they, you know, only have to back their assets one-to-one, but are okay trusting centralized issuer, then you know a USDC or a USDT is great for them. If you have some of the more you know, crypto-native or decentralization maximalist side of, side of things, then maybe you prefer a crypto collateralized stablecoin like DAI, but you get a little bit less capital efficiency. Or if you're you know, more speculative on, on stablecoins and in particular algorithmic stablecoins, then you know, I could see the, the desire for wanting a system like that. What What's interesting, in particular, when you start to look at why different stablecoins exist, you you kind of start to see the design mechanisms are beginning to blend over time. And so you have USDC and USDT, which are backed by cash and cash equivalents. And those are like US treasuries and other commercial papers in the case of USDT. But then you have DAI, which is backed by crypto assets. And what's interesting in particular is uh, 25 or 30% of those crypto assets backing DAI are actually USDC, another stablecoin, which we just said are backed by uh, cash and cash equivalents. And so I think we're seeing a convergence of these models. And all that to say is that you know people are speculating on different de- types of design because we're early in the uh, evolution of stablecoins. But ultimately, we've seen the best models play out, and that tends to be the you know one to one backed or over collateralized models. And I think we're starting to see those converge. And you know, it's it's likely in the future we'll kind of have a one to one backed stablecoin. I don't know, m- monopoly call it. And and so just worth highlighting there. So what percentage did you say in your research of Dai is collateralized by USDC currently? So there's 30% of DAI's collateral is, is USDC. And, and do you know the breakdown? I guess to put that into perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So to put that into perspective, they have about 10 billion in reserves and they have about 6 billion in supply. So they're, they're over collateralized by about, you know, I don't know, they're 170% collateralized or so. 30% of that 10 billion is USDC and then 40% is Ethereum. So it's primarily Ethereum and USDC. Uh, and then the remainder are things like, primarily LP tokens, right? So Curve, stablecoin LP tokens, which you can assume are kind of like cash equivalents for, for lack of a better comparison. And and as these balances get, get pretty big, so the aggregate size of, let's take USDC's balance sheet, do you have a breakdown of how that is allocated between cash and, and treasuries and other assets? 
Yeah. So yeah, yeah, definitely. And USTC and USDT are interesting to compare in that regard too. USDC has about 54 billion in reserves. 23% of those are short duration treasuries and the remaining 77% is cash. So it's primarily cash, but there is, you know, a quarter of it or so is short duration US treasuries, so less than, you know, less than a year to maturity treasury bills. And if somebody goes to redeem their USDC back for for USD, is there a kind of waterfall? So do they always dip into the cash reserves first and then into the cash equivalents? How does that mechanism work? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm actually not entirely sure of that. And maybe that's that's part of the where where that trust layer and that centralization layer starts to create more of a vague picture. But I would imagine they go into the cash first and then the and then the short duration treasuries. Because one one interesting thing I was reading recently, Ryan, was that as Tether and USDC get bigger, if there was a generalized panic in the crypto markets about kind of, let's say, reserves or reporting, it could actually lead to a scenario where USDC and USDT, so Circle and, and Tether, have such sizable treasury holdings that they can't actually offload it all at the same time. Obviously, the treasury market's the most liquid market in the world, and there's plenty of banks in the in the repo and dealer markets there. But they are getting to a size where they could represent a certain percentage of all the treasury ownership. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to to observe as stablecoin issuance reaches all-time highs because it's it's not slowed down, right? It's not abated during this this bear market. If anything, there's been even more issuance. So just something at refi that we're keeping an eye on is what percentage of the commercial paper market and what percentage of the short-dated treasury market actually ends up on the balance sheet of Tether and, and Circle, something that we're we're keeping an eye on. Have you had any any thoughts about that yeah. at your side? It's definitely a risk that people should be aware of. And it's part of the redemption risk that you run with with these centralized issuers where um, if they did run into a liquidity crisis, right, they may have to, you know, pause redemptions like we've seen some some CFI lenders do. Now I'm not saying that is going to happen or you know, it, I don't believe that's super likely to happen. However, if you think about Tether, for example, so they ha- they're they're larger than USDC, so the the impact that they might have in this type of situation could be could be larger potentially. But if you look at the the breakdown of their reserves, which eighty six percent are cash and, and cash equivalent, and so even within that eighty six percent of cash and cash equivalents, right? There's some there's some breakdown which I don't have right in front of me, but where it's you know different lengths of maturity in the different papers. Some of it's commercial papers, not just three bills. And so you start to get into a little bit more of a liquidity and a solvency concern there, even within their cash and cash equivalents bucket. Now let's look outside their cash and cash equivalents bucket for a second, which is the remaining 15% of their reserves. So there's about 15 billion or 12 billion or so of reserves that are sitting in a combination of other investments, which include digital tokens. Okay, so not sure how speculative those tokens are, but you could think about potential runs from a scenario of those those assets crashing as collateral. They have corporate bonds, funds, and precious metals. You know, the ability to redeem precious metals and other types of, you know, potentially less liquid trading instruments here rises with Tether versus USDC. And then they also have some secured loans. So I definitely think there is liquidity concern, I guess, to answer the question. I don't know how much of it resides in in specifically the 
the US treasury bills and, and kind of cash equivalents bucket as much as some of these other more precarious investments that they've made with the reserves. Yeah, and I think Tether has been quite public about wanting to reduce its commercial paper holding over the past couple of weeks. I think they've they've reduced that by at least 50%, which goes to show that the market is looking more and more extensively at the reserves of these stablecoin issuers and really putting a spotlight on liquidity like they like they should do. We see cycles that come around with regards to Tether and Tether FUD, typically around its reserves and its reporting. <laughs> Is there an internal stance at Bitwise about about Tether, and are you guys comfortable with with Tether, or do you recommend USDC where possible? Oh gosh, you cut out there for a second at the end. Sorry. Sorry, I was talking about Tether FUD, and obviously there's cycles of Tether FUD that come around with regards to its reserves and its reporting. Is there a view a bit wise with regards to the Tether FUD, and do you have a preference for USDC over Tether, or are you indifferent between the two? It's a great question. I, we do, I would say, have a preference to avoid USDT tether where where possible, uh, just given you know some of the ambiguity around their reserves. So, so those reserves, for example, that I was going through earlier, that report is from the end of March. So we actually don't don't have a breakdown of their reserves available, you know, through through one of their third party you know accounting partners who do an attestation of their reserves that's more recent, that's reflective of the activity that's happened over the past few months. So, you know, USDC is better uh, about producing reports on their reserves more frequently. They have a monthly report that they have Grant Thornton, which is a big, you know, public accounting firm, you know, sign off an attestation to every month. And so, yeah, all that to say, I guess we do have a preference for, you know, more transparency and more liquid reserves than what we see with, with Tether. Fair enough. I think we share the same view at ReFi. So you spent tens of hours researching stablecoins. Was there anything in your research that surprised you that you didn't know before? Yeah, I spent a lot of time digging into stablecoins. And and one thing in particular that continued to stand out to me is how much the US dollar dominates stablecoin markets. Whether that's if you even you know look outside of USDC and USDT. And you look at crypto-backed stablecoins; they they're all you know either trying to peg their price to one dollar for the most part, one U.S. dollar, or you know backed by, for example, with Dai USDC, right? U.S. dollars more or less. And and even outside of that, you know, there's not a lot of demand for other sovereign currencies in the form of stablecoins, and and there's a little bit of of that in Europe, I believe. And I, I did see that that Circle is is launching a a euro coin, you know, right like USDC coin, so I imagine we'll start to see that that balance shift slightly. But yeah, I was kind of shocked at how how much the US dollar dominates the stablecoin markets and particularly shocked when you think about some of the regulators that have such a strong negative stance against stablecoins in the US and, and view them as really bad and threatening to dollar supremacy when it's very clear that the digital economy that operates, you know, that crypto operates in has a huge demand for US dollars just in a crypto native, you know, digital crypto dollar way. Yeah, I mean, the, the cynic in me says, what have we really created in crypto if if all we're doing is providing access to the USD? That's, yeah. surely, not, <laughs> that's surely not the genesis or the, 
the intention of, let's say, Ethereum as ultrasound money. And so it's in the development which I watch cautiously because it's getting to a point where the marginal benefit of holding your money in USDC versus just having it in USD, especially with all the kind of concerns around CFI lenders, which we can get into. It, it's it's a tough question. What kind of questions do you get from your investor base on on crypto at the moment? And in particular, have they, have they scaled back their crypto intentions because of everything that's happened with BlockFi and Voyager? and others? Yeah, I think right now a lot of investors are hitting the pause button all around. So whether not just being with crypto market exposure, but you know, kind of sitting on the sidelines and waiting for the dust to settle from a macroeconomic and global financial markets perspective. The the one positive about you know our investors and our clients is is that their exposure to crypto is a relatively small portion of their portfolio. So think, you know, one to three percent, or you know, maybe the most bullish are up in the five or ten percent range. And so when global markets like this are crashing, they tend to be focused more on exposure to tech stocks and bonds and other, you know, traditional market activity. That being said, we are seeing a lot of questions and we're spending some time helping clarify the difference between you know, what's going on with centralized financial companies like 3AC and Celsius and BlockFi and how that's different from, you know, the crypto protocols that we track in our index, like, you know, the Ethereum's like Uniswap and, and Aave and Compound, I guess, to make a better comparison to the CFI lenders. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of goes back to what you talked about earlier with that educational journey. I mean, this is really important time for, for those who are learning about crypto obviously it's it's really great experience for those of us that have been around for a little while but for people that are just getting into the market it can often be a much uh a much more fruitful educational journey when you're going through the bear market like this than when you join during a bull cycle where you know everyone's trading nfts and and profile pictures and so yeah we're seeing a lot of questions around you know is crypto dead you know is is there something different about the protocols that we're tracking in our indexes versus what they're seeing on and hearing on the mainstream media. And, and so, yeah, it's an interesting time, but education is so important. I think right now just highlights that. Indeed. And for the for the kind of listeners who are maybe looking for a summary of exactly what happened with some of these CFI lenders, could you just quickly recap how it was all kind of interrelated together with 3AC? Definitely. So it all kind of, I mean, started with with the unwinding of the UST algorithmic stablecoin and Luna, the the crypto asset that backed it or you know was relationally associated with it. And when those two assets really imploded and lost about sixty billion in, in value last month in in the middle of May, it had a bunch of ripple effects. And what we saw happen was some of these centralized companies, one of which is is Three Arrows Capital or 3AC, which is a crypto hedge fund, had a lot of exposure to to Luna and UST. And, you know, those two kind of companies and I guess blockchain and, and stablecoin and companies within within themselves could have been an isolated event, you know, and, and maybe crypto wouldn't have, have been hit so hard. But unfortunately, what's come out, I guess, over the past month now is that 3AC had a lot of lending agreements with a lot of the centralized lenders being you know, those crypto banks that people hear about that offer eight to 10% yield on their, 
on their crypto assets like Celsius and BlockFi and, and Voyager. And these firms were lending customer funds to Three Arrows Capital, who was then going and making a bunch of speculative and highly leveraged bets that were you know, directionally bullish on crypto. And so when crypto markets fell alongside global capital markets over the past month, a lot of those leveraged trades ended up in the red. And we saw 3ACE, which is one of the largest crypto hedge funds, become insolvent. And we're seeing the ripple effects happen across the you know centralized lending space because a lot of centralized lenders were taking customer funds or you know, I, th- I believe BlockFi was doing it with assets on their balance sheet versus potentially with with customer funds. But you know, we're engaged in a lot of this bullish, leveraged kind of lending to bullish, leveraged traders, and and so that all is unwinding. And what's fascinating is that we're now seeing FTX and some other companies. Even I think Goldman Sachs was looking at getting involved and helping bail some of these companies out, and and that highlights that DeFi. In all this time, the true DeFi protocols like Aave and Compound and, and you know MakerDAO have really been been standing on their own. And through this crazy resilient, you know, market collapsing structure that's happening and unwinding, it's happening to the market structure. We're seeing these DeFi protocols stand stand the test and operate as intended and process liquidations and stay over collateralized and stay solvent. You know, while What's happening in CFI is, is horrible, and there are a lot of investors that are losing their money. And it would be horrible to be a, a customer at one of these CFI lending firms who received a notification that your you know, your debit card is now canceled. This just reinforces the need for true DeFi, true crypto protocols, and not going through a centralized company because that's just like going through a bank, more or less. Indeed. I think on our last podcast, we had the guys at Euler Finance. And one of the points we made at the end of that was all the major DeFi lending protocols, whether it's Aave, Compound themselves, etc. They were processing liquidations efficiently. Uh, Pricing oracles were feeding through correctly. And everything was working as intended. There was no outages like you sometimes see with centralized exchanges. Clients could deposit and withdraw their capital very easily. And I think it's a real kind of line in the sand moment for DeFi because the DeFi protocols themselves worked very well. The people that were behind the scenes and the centralized entities who were making off-chain decisions didn't act in the best interest of their customers. And I think it, it comes back to that kind of idea that you want to be sovereign in the crypto world. You want to own your own assets and you want to own the keys to your own assets. And this obviously is is proving that, to come back to your earlier topic on trust, there's going to be a, the, the whole point of crypto is to be trustless. And I think the layers in which we've added trust, like lending money to 3ACE or giving money to Celsius for a promised yield, etc., they're not the full nature of, of DeFi. So Celsius is not DeFi. They're using DeFi on the underneath, but they're not DeFi. And I think it's really important to distinguish that DeFi itself has worked very, very well, although TVL has has kind of collapsed <laughs> across the board. But that's my kind of stance as somebody who's obviously deep in the in the DeFi space. From your perspective, where does DeFi go from here then? Because we've had a collapse of TVL. We've had a collapse in trust and confidence. We've had a flight to quality. And like you said, a lot of people moving their assets to USDC and USDT. 
How does DeFi grow from here? Yeah, I think I agree. This is kind of a reckoning moment to, to, that shakes the ground of, of the crypto industry, shakes the foundation and shows that DeFi is, is here to stay and, and really is a resilient structure and, and shows that, yeah, replicating traditional finance and just calling it you know, DeFi is, is, is not going to work and, and frankly, isn't going to cut it. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. You know, TVL is definitely down across the board. I think what's really interesting is when you start to look at the activity in, in DeFi applications across the various, you know, layer ones and, and all, you know, call it quote unquote ETH killer blockchains. We're seeing a lot of the activity consolidate back into Ethereum, which, you know, when the bull market happened and, or, or was, Running the last couple of years, we saw all these L1s like Solana and Avalanche and Fanta and, and Terra, you know, take off and have tremendous growth. But and that drove a lot of the TVL growth, right? As well as price appreciation is in the collateral that are in a lot of these DeFi protocols. But now as the markets are, are kind of coming down and we're seeing what what DeFi might look like in a bear market, I think it's really interesting to see how much of that activity is consolidating into Ethereum you can see that in the you know the fees that are are being recorded by other blockchain networks versus ethereum you can also kind of see that by by looking just at you know where tvl is is sitting primarily today from a from a blockchain breakdown perspective and and that's you know more concentrated in ethereum than than it has been for the past few you know few months or, or quarters so yeah i think i think where we go from here is that people start to really appreciate the resiliency of having a a neutral settlement layer and making sure that you know that the protocols you're using are are actually decentralized and permissionless and so yeah you know i i just see ethereum DeFi in, in the blue chips like uniswap and like ave kind of standing out going forward and and i don't really know how many other uh you know l1 DeFi ecosystems will really be around come come the next bull market. So I'd be interested to hear what what you think, especially as you're thinking about you know operating on just Ethereum DeFi versus other chains. If that risk profile is changing with the consolidation from a liquidity perspective, and and yeah, what you think? Yeah. So so my thoughts on this right is yes, there's been percentage wise a reallocation of TVL back towards ETH, but that's been largely due to a contraction on other chains rather than a growth in in kind of ETH in itself. Mm. I think it really depends on on the developers and where the developers feel comfortable building. So for example, I speak to the team at Avalanche Labs and they've got a dedicated team of people building out DeFi research and content and working with DeFi builders and providing grants, etc really make Avalanche the home for DeFi, right? So there's people in full-time roles who are working together with a whole bunch of DeFi founders, building protocols that kind of interconnect and, and take best practice and knowledge from one another. They review each other's code, they review each other's GitHubs, etc. And there's there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes, a layer one like that, to establish themselves as a dominant player in the in the in the kind of DeFi landscape going forward. So some of the things that they're working at, at Avalanche Labs is to really two things. Number one, to really capture the growth in options and derivatives. So obviously GMX was uh, early to move on to Avalanche uh, as well as uh, Arbitrum, as well as a couple of other options protocols that are looking to launch there. And then real world lending as well is another real focus for them. So working with DeFi builders who are trying to connect on-chain credit with uh, off-chain loans. And I think that's going to be a source of growth. So following layer ones where there's a real 
dedication towards being a DeFi offering that caters for for something just beyond your kind of borrowing and lending markets for big crypto whales. You know, the big criticism that DeFi is just Celsius and just in sun. They're trying to diversify <laughs> that, that kind of side of things. And then looking away from that, obviously, you've got things like Phantom who have uh, scaling issues, but then they have a very dedicated, again, dev community that speak to each other and they they share best practice there was a lot of those phantom foundation grants given out etc i just feel like phantom as a brand is all kind of a bit playful and a bit ghastly and isn't really going to usher in that next generation of institutional investor which you speak to i just don't think that the the branding and communications is consistent with that but a big fan of some of the stuff happening on layer twos as well, like uh, Arbitrum, mm-hmm. for example, and, and Optimism, etc. So something that we're keeping an eye out for, as well as uh, one of the most interesting and topical things that has taken place is we're big users of DYDX as a derivatives exchange and their decision to move off, off uh, Ethereum and, and Starkware to uh, Cosmos and an SDK there is interesting for us as to whether that sets a precedent for for more people moving away from from layer twos and going elsewhere with obviously some kind of security concerns that they give up or some kind of security benefits that they give up from being on ethereum but then they they get the benefit of uh, flexibility and owning their own space on on the blockchain as well so there's lots Mm -hmm. of moving parts i think to answer your question it's it's a fluid dynamic story i don't think we share the same view that ethereum will be the absolute winner from all of this i think there's a lot of teams secretly building to really attract the right kind of DeFi founder and the right kind of real world user case for me as a liquidity provider i'm always interested in speaking to up-and-coming DeFi protocols so i'll give you some names of the ones that are being built on avalanche um, yeah let's see awesome. if i can find it yeah let me see if i can find their github so yeah i've i've, I've come across a surprising number of investment you know, professionals that we speak with who are, are, you know, phantom bulls for what it's worth. So you might, you might be onto something there. Yeah. So Defica, Amphi, Silta, Silta, who are looking to do stuff with regards to infrastructure finance, Rubbervault, Dexalot, Arrow Markets. These are all protocols that are either trying to scoop up real world demand or they're trying to work on the options and risk management side of things. So I'll send you that list separately. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. I, I definitely think that there's there's room for the risk management side of DeFi to grow. I mean, if you're going to bring in you know institutional investors, they definitely demand some kind of at, at a minimum you know way to hedge against their exposure in a little bit more of a sophisticated way than what what's offered today. You know, like borrowing the reverse asset on Ave and, and selling it or something like that. And so, I definitely think that's a big big room to to run for that you know corner of the market and. I've been using Arbitrum and Optimism a lot. Definitely, you know, a fan of of those protocols because they're Ethereum native. But yeah, definitely expand into some of these other ecosystems a little bit more, you know, during during the bear market here and see what has true staying power. And so let's talk about that. So are there any, away from the blue chips, which you mentioned, so you're kind of Uniswap, Aave, Compound, etc. Are there any protocols which you are a fan of that may be a bit smaller off the radar, but on a professional and personal level that you're a fan of? Yeah, let's see. I, I've been using a Tracer a little bit, Tracer DAO a little bit. It's a Arbitrum kind of native perpetuals protocol. Pika is another one that's on Optimism that I've been using for options trading, which which 
I guess, became rather dangerous the time that I kind of discovered it and started using it given where markets end up going. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've enjoyed those two. I've been trading a lot on Slingshot as well, which is, you know, an, an a, a exchange that operates across a variety of of layer ones or and layer twos. One thing that so I P-K- actually really... In- P-K- oh, sorry, go ahead. P-K-S and P-I-K-A. Yeah, P-I-K-A. Yeah, exactly. You know, one thing that I actually quite enjoy is is just going through zapper generally for a lot of stuff these you know this portfolio kind of aggregation tools that you can plug your wallet into and and you can do a lot of lping and swapping and moving between networks through those so yeah it's been kind of fun to to explore some of these different protocols as they've as they've grown but i'm a little wary of bridges at the moment so you know not totally comfortable exploring a ton of new ecosystems at the moment, given just where liquidity is. And, and you know, we had the Harmony Bridge hack recently and, and, and such. So I'm probably a little bit more cautious on, on, on that end. But, but yeah, those are the ones I've been exploring on, on Ethereum L2s. We're, we're very cautious as well. I think sometimes the risk versus reward is just uh, is not there to, to kind of experiment, unlike unlike it was maybe three to six months ago. I'll end on a mm-hmm. final question then. Lots of concerns right now, I'm sure, amongst your institutional investors about the macro outlook. Based on your conversations with the hedge funds, with the financial advisors, with some of the big investment firms that you speak to, how do you see it playing out over the next couple of weeks and months? I think things are are starting to take a turn from a from a bottoming out or a kind of stalling out perspective. So we're seeing some positive things on inflation in Germany, for example. We saw some inflation come down month over or, or you know year over year inflation numbers come down this month, which is slightly bullish. You know, I'm kind of seeing gas prices come down at least in in California where I'm at from where they were a couple of weeks ago. And so with those kind of indicators, as well as some of the other conversations around a lot of this leverage in, in the crypto system is kind of seemed to have settled out. We had ETH and Bitcoin oversold quite a bit uh, compared to alts. And that clearly was a function of forced, forced selling that was happening. So there's not as much fear in the crypto markets, I think of, of further unwinding as much as how it does relate to the the uh, traditional markets. But yeah, you know, things I think are right now moving from the fearful to neutral on the spectrum, you know, uh, on the greed spectrum. And so the good news is, I think we see it playing out that we'll have positive regulatory developments on the crypto side of things, we might have be bottoming me out from an inflation and from a, you know, uh, flushing out the the excess liquidity, or I'm sorry, leverage in the markets. And so yeah, I think things are, are headed to to maybe a little bit lower, but kind of at a bottom and we'll probably move sideways for a while. But it tends to be that that a lot of the fear that was there a few weeks ago is starting to turn more more neutral. People are starting to look at different asset classes as a potential, you know, buying opportunity. Clearly the the you know Biden administration is is looking at inflation and everything very seriously. And so yeah, we're hopeful that with the the, uh, the attention everyone now has on you know, where inflation has gotten to and it being a key priority, you know, with, with the combination of markets kind of consolidating, collapsing a little bit, probably leaves us in a place where we're moving flat, but have reached a bottom. That's a very, very optimistic outlook. And I think I'd, I'd like to share some, some similar enthusiasm. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm a little bit on the bearish side and I'm 
I'm guilty of being a bit of a perma bear, so I hope <laughs> for everybody's I hope for everybody's sake that you are correct. Ryan, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the Refi DeFi podcast. Thank you for taking the time to explain some of your recent research. Thank you for giving us an insight into what institutional investors are thinking in this space. And thank you for highlighting some of the protocols and themes that you see persisting and, and growing in the DeFi space over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, absolutely. It was a blast talking to you. I appreciate you having me on. And yeah, looking forward to to following your podcast and following the, the refi team as you guys continue to grow. So great chatting with you as well. Cheers, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks. This podcast is hosted by Huff, the lead farmer at Reimagine Finance. Reimagine Finance is a farming as service provider available on the Ethereum and Binance smart chain. Nothing in this podcast can be considered financial advice and any money invested is purely at your own risk. Nothing in this podcast should be considered an invitation to invest, and listeners should seek independent advice. You can follow us on Twitter, Telegram, and Discord. 